Hershella G. Conyers is a clinical professor of law and director of the Criminal and Juvenile Justice Clinic at the University of Chicago Law School. The clinic affords law students a supervised opportunity to provide direct client representation while working on juvenile justice issues, including policy initiatives, legislation, and systemic litigation. The clinic works with other institutional players to advance reforms in the criminal and juvenile justice area. In recent years, CJP has collaborated with the Illinois Judicial Council in presenting a symposium on understanding juveniles involved in the system, and most recently in a restorative justice conference that was held virtually uh, just about a month ago. In addition to her clinic, Professor Conyers also co-teaches the intensive trial practice workshop where I've been lucky enough to uh, teach alongside her and a seminar called Life and Death in the Law. Before joining the law school faculty, Professor, Professor Conyers served as an assistant public defender in the first municipal felony trial and multiple defendants division of the Cook County Public Defender's Office, where I met her as a young public defender at 13th of Michigan many, many years ago. During her time in the multiple defendant division, she handled mostly capital cases. Before leaving the Public Defender's Office, Professor Conyers also served as supervisor in the 1st Municipal Division and Deputy Chief in the 6th District in Bridgeview. Professor Conyers is a graduate of both the University of Chicago's College and Law School. Darren W. Davis is Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. His research interests cover most areas of public opinion and political behavior. He is the author of Negative Liberty, Public Opinion, and the Terrorist Attacks on America, which examines the role of perception on the trade-offs between civil liberties and security, political tolerance, and ideas of citizenship, and Perseverance in the Parish, Religious Attitudes from a Black Catholic Perspective, based on the first national survey of African-American Catholics. The book explores the perceptions of racism and racial experiences in the Catholic Church. Brandon Vianathan is Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Sociology at the Catholic University of America. He holds a PhD in Sociology from the University of Notre Dame. His research examines the cultural dimensions of religious, commercial, medical, and scientific institutions and has been widely published in peer-reviewed journals. He is the author of Mercenaries and Missionaries, Capitalism and Catholicism in the Global South, Cornell University Press 2019, and co-author of Secularity and Science, What Scientists Around the World Really Think About Religion, Oxford University Press 2019. His ongoing research examines the mental health effects of COVID-19 pandemic on faith communities and among scientists. I'd ask that the uh, Mr. Vi Professor Vianathan and the uh, remainder of the panelists uh, unmute themselves. And uh, I would invite Brenda Vianathan to open with his presentation. Great, thank you, Tom. Uh, good evening, everyone. And uh, thank you for the kind invitation. Um, it's honestly very humbling to be here considering I'm not a scholar of race or a criminologist or an expert on criminal justice reform. 
which is also why I'm especially glad that we have Herschella and Darren here who are the legitimate experts on these matters. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more from them uh, and from those of you in the audience, especially who might have insights for us to consider. Uh, the piece I've been invited to talk about is mainly meant to be a conversation starter. Uh, Tom asked me to say a word about how this essay came about. Um, in my parish listserv about a year ago, we were having a vibrant discussion uh, first starting with Heather McDonald's article in the Wall Street Journal and then more broadly about systemic racism. Um, and so that's re really where the impetus for this came about. I found McDonald's article really problematic, um, not simply for cherry picking data, which, which I guess is fine for an opinion writer, uh, but, but also misrepresenting the claims that were made in the data she was citing. Uh, and more broadly, there seemed to be confusion around how racism, which is typically understood as individual prejudice could be seen as systemic. And so, um, you know, to me, the institutional factors that, that are alluded to in the concept of systemic racism, such as policies and norms and codes and regulations, et cetera, uh, how they could consistently disadvantage certain groups and even uh, communicate to them that they don't really matter. That was very real. It was fairly obvious to me. And, and it was very much um, my experience of growing up as an Indian citizen in the Middle East where I became you know, intimately familiar with both personal and institutional discrimination. Uh, so as I, as I was trying to explain these issues, one of the members of our listserv asked if I could put something together for public discourse on some of the things I was arguing. And so this article came about. Um, and so there, there are a couple of goals to this piece. Uh, one is conceptual, which is to try to bring a bit more clarity to what the concept of systemic racism is referring to. Uh, and the second is empirical, which is to address the data around police shootings which was the focus of McDonald's article. Uh, for our purposes today, I'm not going to go into the police shooting data. I'm not sure we need to, um, uh, but I guess we could in the Q&A if you wanted to, but, but I'm mainly gonna focus on the first point. Um, and, 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 and so through the conversations I was having, it seemed to me that the term systemic racism, which, which is rhetorically powerful, uh, may not be the best way to communicate the reality that it's pointing to. Uh, partly because it provokes defensive reactions, like I'm not racist, America's not racist, et cetera, uh, creates confusion as to how a system can exhibit prejudice. And more importantly, there was confusion around whether systemic racism was referring to the cause or effect. Is it the thing that's doing the explaining or the thing that's being explained? Um, so for these reasons, I argued in my piece, it might be better for us to talk about a racialized system, uh, which is a you know, complex of institutions that produces enduring disadvantages for certain racial groups. I mean, remember in, in our context in, in the US, we're looking at a system where there was never historically any sort of level playing field between blacks and whites, right? This is, there's been disadvantage from the beginning. Um, and this disadvantaging is system wide as I, as I show. So, you know, compared to whites, blacks are more likely to be wrongfully convicted of a whole range of crimes, to be offered plea bargains that include jail time, to serve life without parole for nonviolent offenses, to receive longer sentences for the same crime, to be incarcerated while awaiting trial. I mean, incredibly long list of things. And, and, so, and so that's why I found it baffling how some people could argue that there is no systemic racism. Um, so so I, I then tried to identify at least three kinds of causal mechanisms uh, that produce these disadvantages, that these enduring disadvantages. And, and I think these mechanisms are being conflated when people talk about systemic racism. 
So what types of mechanisms might be at work? I, I just call them uh, for, for lack of ingenuity, type one, type two, and type three. So type one is good old racism, individual prejudice and discrimination based on ideas of racial superiority and inferiority. And this, I think most people would agree was the dominant mechanism uh, from slavery through the Civil Rights Act. So that's, that's some 350 years, right? And it operated both in individual level interactions as well as through laws. And now with the Civil Rights Act, the law disallowed individual discrimination based on race, but that didn't mean that racist beliefs and attitudes and negative stereotypes and so on can disappear overnight. Um, now over time, I think we've seen that racist attitudes have declined, at least in what people are willing to report on surveys, but they haven't by any means completely vanished. Uh, and I suspect with social media, there might even be an increase and in even intensification of this kind of racism in some pockets. So that is one mechanism. And, and often when people say racist, that's, that's what they're thinking about. It's prejudice and discrimination and bias and so on. But there's a second type of mechanism which has to do with the institutional level. And, and this is uh, for this type two, I'm looking within the criminal justice system. And here we're looking at laws and policies and norms that may not be inherently racist, but produce those racial disparities. Um, and some of them could have been motivated by racist intent. Uh, so you could see this if you look at the history of say felon disenfranch disenfranchisement laws or poll taxes. Um, and they could also include other policies like the war on drugs or the war on crime, which led to mass incarceration, et cetera. So, um, so that's the second set of, of, uh, of mechanisms. And then a third type uh, is, is factors outside the criminal justice system. And so this includes all kinds of structural and cultural factors, such as redlining, policies that led to the breakdown of family life, disparities in healthcare, education and employment, cultural factors, unintended consequences of other social policies. The point is there are a host of factors outside the criminal justice system that also play a role in shaping the background conditions for say police encounters. Now you can come up with different categories and different kinds of mechanisms. This is one attempt, uh, but the main point, what I've been trying to do is to see, can, you know, can we develop a language that can, first of all, disentangle cause and effect, and secondly, help us to see systemic racism or systemic disadvantage uh, or whatever you wanna call it, help us to see this as not just a zero one state. That is uh, either the whole system is racist or it's not racist at all, which was, which was some of the debate um, that I've been seeing, but instead to see it as a matter of degrees. Why? Well, so that we can measure and track change. Uh, we could track improvement, track decline, uh, track regression. Uh, so that, that was kind of my, my hope, because I think if we can't do that, how do we know if our policies and efforts are succeeding or not, right? So I mean, to be clear, I'm not a positivist. I don't think that the only things that matter are those which we can measure. But in this case, to gain some traction and to move past name calling, uh, I, I think trying to come up with some better concepts that could be operationalized and measured and tracked uh, would really help. So that was the main point I was trying to argue uh, conceptually in that piece. And I think I will stop there. Thank you. And I, I was muted. So for our first response, uh, Professor Hershella Conyers. Hershella? Uh, thanks, Judge Donnelly. Uh, so I am here uh, this evening in my role uh, to talk about both my participation in my willing participation in and observation of the criminal and juvenile justice system. And I have been practicing as a criminal defense lawyer for over 30 years. And uh, the notes that I have written, what I've written down uh, is of a piece, but I also want to 
bring this point home, that when we talk about race, we must include sex and gender in this conversation. Uh, it is also part of the conversation, the bigger conversation, and part of the other isms that have held us back, sexism and homophobia and all of those. And they are also uh, embedded in the criminal and juvenile justice system. So just to give you my sort of eight points of, of observation and participation in the criminal justice system. One, it is a system of power. And it is a system of power that clearly identifies the insiders and the outsiders. The insiders, we get badges, we get easy access, we get things that let other people know we're important people coming through uh, and we'll see you in the courtroom or we will see you in the jail, but we have first access and this is about us mostly. Um, the major players in this, these systems continue to be predominantly white, male, and, uh, and I don't think that this is just Cook County, but also politically connected. Uh, and I think that that's important to think about when we talk about what uh, Brandon alluded to as the bigger institutions. Uh, and along with the major players being white, male, and politically connected, and these, my third observation, and it's separate from the second one, but it is important to understand is toxic masculinity. And the toxic masculinity from the criminal and juvenile system flows primarily from the, the police who are as a rule, the most constant, most consistent uh, witnesses, information gatherers uh, in this system and their culture uh, both of testifying and their culture of information gathering has impacted this system uh, in ways that uh, I think are not healthy and in ways that have suggested that women and you know, bleeding heart liberals and other such you know, unstrong human beings should not get involved where we don't really fit in. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is cash bond, the cash bond system. Again, it goes to the notion of what other systems impact this. Well, a cash bond system does not work well for the poorest people in the community who are also the people who are most likely to be arrested. And what the cash bond system leads to is, I'm so sorry, this is crazy. What the cash bond system leads to is that families will not pay their rent, not pay their bills to try to bond a loved one out. But uh, the question then of if the accused does not get out, where is the accused? And the question is if the accused is in a jail and the higher the, the bond, obviously the longer the accused will be locked up. And uh, let me say this about Cook County Jail. Again, I've been going into that jail since approximately 1986. If it were an animal shelter, we would close it. It is hideous, it is filthy, it is rodent infested. You have human beings on top of each other. 
the nutritional value of the food there is practically non-existent. And um, that's my observation. Um, my other observations are, um, even when we bring outsiders into the system to try to legitimize it, that is when we bring jurors into a courtroom to decide matters of guilt or innocence, the uh, issue of excluding minority jurors is, remains. And the case is Batson, which says that you could not kick somebody off of the jury because of race. Uh, there are hundreds, if not thousands of cases brought about pretext, about why a person has been excluded. Uh, but it continues. And as long as, and the history of that still informs how we pick our jurors, the process of jury selection, uh, the open nature of the jury selection, uh, just to give you two points, you know, where when most jurors are, are questioned, it is an open court. There are two things here I think we need to start to look at. This has been my, again, my observations. I think that to ask someone, one, if you have been a victim of a crime, you will be doing a great deal of harm unintended, and I believe it is intended, to women who have been sexually abused. They are not likely to raise their hand in a room of 45 strangers and say, yes, and I'd like to talk about it. Uh, so I think we need to look at how that system, jury selection impacts similarly when you ask someone if they have ever been uh, convicted of a crime. Likewise, this is not a badge of honor. And I think the person who may have been convicted of a crime and still um, obeys a jury summons should be given, again, the uh, dignity of having that conversation in a private space. Um, so there are ways to suppress juror participation, and it may be unintentional, it may not. That's an observation. Uh, so the other thing that I have seen, again, is the discounting, drastic discounting of mental health issues in poor and minority communities. Uh, it is frightening. It is, uh, and, and it has probably been a major source of mis miscarriages of justice in sentencing and in trying to figure out what a person needs, both, uh, and, and with the mental health issues, also I am including, you know, substance uh, abuse and addiction. And we're getting a little better. We now have specialty courts, but for years, uh, they did not exist and, and it was, and again, what it takes to get sent to a specialty court requires probably more than is absolutely necessary. Um, and my other observation is the adultification and overcriminalization of children. Uh, at this point, and we've been working on this for years, but at this point, uh, we're trying to just raise the age of detention to 13. Historically, we have had children in juvenile detention facilities for weeks, if not months, at the age of nine. 
And I think we are only able to do that when we adultify the conduct of children. And again, I am not an academic and I, I, I don't do data well at all. But what I have looked at in the surveys and studies that I have read have suggested that we uh, culturally tend to uh, adultify black and brown children. We see them as older than their actual age. Uh, we see them as uh, a term that I hate, but street smart, uh, like that is a, an advantage in education and a developmental uh, way that, that, that children can be brought to understand uh, misconduct better because they are street smart. My definition of street smart is neglect. Um, so, and, and with that adultification also, again, I think it's important to talk about um, girls in the system. Black and brown girls are seen as more dangerous and less likely to be believed when they say that they have been sex trafficked uh, and it, it remains you know, a problem. So those are, my, those are my observations and questions about the criminal justice system. As I say, I have been an active participant in it and I will leave you with, with two things if I have the time. Uh, as a clinician, my students go to court with me. And it is not uncommon for my students after we leave court to turn to me and ask me, where do the white kids go to court? Uh, it is a question I have been asked uh, on more than one occasion. And then the final thing I'll leave you with when I talk about how this is not the, both the willing participants and the unwilling participants can be impacted. So about three years ago, I am in a courtroom preparing for trial. I have two students with me. I am in the well of the courtroom where the audience cannot cross through. And I am sitting there uh, with my students and a new young sheriff, probably about 30 some year old white male, walks into the courtroom from the back he walks over to me and he says, lady, you're not supposed to sit here. And I pull out my attorney card because I don't leave home without it. To hell with American Express. I don't leave home without my attorney card uh, in this system. So I hand it to him. And what he says to me was not, oh, sorry. Oh, counselor, whatever. He says to me, I thought you looked too old to be a defendant. So those are my observations about the criminal justice and juvenile justice system that I have been in. And I will just simply say this, I firmly believe that there are well-intentioned, good-hearted, generous, smart people in this system. Um, and so I look forward to hoping that this will bring us all in conversation with each other. Um, and that's a wonderful hope. Following her solar Conyers will be Professor Darren Davis and he'll give his response uh, to Brandon's piece and then we'll uh, sort of mix it up a little bit. Darren? 
thank you, Thomas. Uh, that was so great. I've, I feel like um, my comments are so minimal right now. Uh, Hershella, thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> what I'd like to do is to talk about um, my perspectives based on some of my research and reading of the literature. And I want to press Brendan a little bit uh, in his article, um, in his provocative article, um, he mentioned a couple things that I like to question, like to press him on. And <clears throat> I'd like to start with this question. Why don't things change? And it seems like Brandon is attributing this mostly to uh, three various factors that, in, that include structural, um, also attitudinal. And I kind of want to focus on the attitudinal since that's what I specialize in. Um, so why don't things change? Why is criminal justice reform necessary? Why is it going to be difficult? Um, so <clears throat> the thing I would like to contribute is basically two things. One is that I think the problem, Brandon, is, is a lot larger. I think racial prejudice, uh, racism um, will always exist. It's not gonna go away. It's not gonna go away anytime soon. But I'd kind of like to shift the conversation a bit. I'd like to shift the conversation a bit to suggest that people do not have to be racist in order to do, in order to say and support policies um, against um, or challenging criminal justice reform um, because um, people don't have to be racist to do racist things. They don't have to be racist to say or do or support policies that racists support. There are other values, there's other motivations that actually contribute to uh, the ills of society, um, to how people perceive the criminal justice system, to how people perceive um, people involved in the criminal justice system. So I wanna talk about those other values. I wanna talk about those other beliefs. Um, in your article, um, you mentioned um, a book by um, Benia Silva, uh, Racism Without Racists. And I think that really encapsulates, encapsulates the point I'm trying to make that many traditional values in American society backfire. And they backfire in such a way in which they do more harm than good. Uh, values like uh, deservingness, uh, beliefs in justice. Uh, can you imagine that? That beliefs in just, we all have different beliefs in justice, but those different beliefs in justice can actually backfire. What I'm actually talking about, uh, Brandon, is that um, I, I, 
I've read research to suggest that uh, Holocaust monuments actually increase anti-Semitism because people have a belief in a just world where only bad things happen to bad people. People are motivated to think that because only bad things happen to bad people, they are somehow deserving of their bad treatment or their harsh treatment, even in the harsh treatment that we see in the criminal justice system. So when Holocaust monuments are being constructed, the only way that people can make sense of why they exist is because the people who died in the Jewish Holocaust somehow deserved it. Bringing this closer to home that individuals, mostly African-Americans and Latinos who are in, involved in a criminal justice system, there is a lack of empathy because people think that they deserved it. And people think that in order to maintain their sense of justice, that these people are deserving of the treatment that they receive. It's not about race. This is where I started. It's not about race per se. It is not racial prejudice. It is not racism, but it's based on these other values of belief in justice and belief in deservingness, uh, system justification, just world beliefs, ideas of fairness. Um, and I wanna raise that here because Race is extremely important and we can't forget that. But Brandon, I submit to you that I think the reason why things don't really change, especially in criminal justice reform is because these are the values. In addition, in addition to racial prejudice and structural racism, I'm not trying to discount those those, uh, those uh, uh, different mechanisms that you cite in your article. I'm not trying to deny those at, at all. And I think you're right on point. But I guess what I'm asking is to what extent is that really complete? And there's another concept that I would like to raise um, and that is moral disengagement. This raises the question, how is it possible for individuals to go along in their daily lives, but also treating people in a very harsh and heinous way? And that is because they disengage their sense of morality. They think it no longer applies. So they don't feel that sense of empathy. They don't see things as this moral uh, uh, struggle. 
And in that process, people believe that, again, I, I keep coming back to this term, that people are deserving of the poor treatment that they receive. That look, good things are supposed to happen to good people. We are motivated to believe that only bad things happen to bad people. So, so Brandon, I guess what I'm asking is to what extent is your argument in your piece really complete? We know that racism exists. You have shown that in your article very well. Um, but I wanna broaden the argument a bit to talk about how normal everyday citizens become complicit in the problems that we see in uh, the criminal justice system. It's not just racists. I guess that's my point. It's not just racist. It's common everyday citizens operating under different motivations and ideas. And I'll stop there. Thank you. And Brandon, I wanted to give you a chance to respond to uh, both Hershella and Darren's uh, remarks, and then we'll break it open for a free discussion. Great, thank you. Thank you both. Um, Hershella, that was really moving. I mean, it's really uh, incredible, uh, the things you shared. I mean, it is, you know, it is really quite I don't know, heart-wrenching, I guess, you know, to, to hear, uh, particularly about the kids who are, you know, are still um, being uh, dehumanized in, in our system. And, um, and I, th I think part of the challenge still is, as uh, Bob Putnam said, is we don't, we don't see kids who are poor and from minority communities as our kids. We don't see them as our as citizens of our country. We, you know, they're, they're on the other side of the tracks and we forget about them by and large. And so, um, so that, that really is a, is, is a serious issue. Uh, yeah, where do white kids go to court? My gosh, um, uh, uh, it's really incredible. Um, Darren, I, I do agree, you know, on, on both of your, your points, really, I think um, I, I did not take into account, uh, so, so the, the kinds of individual level mechanisms I was focusing on, uh, really the mechanisms I, I was trying to, to trace were, were those that are conflated with the concept of systemic racism. So when people talk about systemic racism, what do they mean? And what are the, you know, the host of, of things that, that are mixed into that concept? And so that's why I, I try to separate those three types. There are all kinds of other things I'm sure that are at work. And I think certainly just world belief system justification beliefs and so on uh, would be at play in, in um, you know, in driving uh, the same outcomes. Um, you know, I, I think of, of the work of one of my colleagues, Austin Choi Fitzpatrick, who's, who studied bonded laborers in India and, and sort of former slaveholders. And so you have these slaveholders who justify the caste system for oppressing, uh, you know, their, their laborers. Um, but, but it's not just that they see them as inferior. They also see uh, themselves as defending a certain moral order. They see themselves as defending an order in which they are at the top, in which they um, are responsible for, uh, you know, they have this paternalistic attitude towards, towards the uh, bonded laborers and they expect uh, respect and, and, and deference and so forth. Uh, and, and that is, you know, a little bit different from uh, a kind of the sort of uh, racist type of belief, right? So, um, 
I think you're right about, about the deservingness uh, ideas and people want to believe that the system they're in is largely trustworthy. And, and so, um, so that, that, is, that is, I think, an obstacle, you're right, to reform. Uh, as, as well as uh, the uh, belief that, um, you know, the disengagement, you know, I, um, yeah, I think of somebody who came up to me after, you know, after I wrote my article and they said, you know, you know George Floyd, he should have just kept his head down. You know, I hate cops too, but um, he, he had it coming for him, right? So this was the kind of, of, of way in which I think people try to say, well, it was his fault ultimately. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, they say, and if I were in his shoes, I would have done something differently. Therefore, what he did was uh, not something that I can empathize with. Um, so I do think those things, are, those things are at work as well. I, it's not, my account is not meant to be uh, comprehensive. I was, I, was, I was mainly trying to, to, to uh, make some distinctions in, in sort of a muddled concept and, and try to, to see if, if that, you know, separating certain elements could give us some traction on these issues, but I would be curious, uh, you know, to, to hear your thoughts as a political psychologist, social psychologist on, on how do we overcome these biases? How do we, um, you know, what do we do when we know that these, these defense mechanisms essentially are uh, driving uh, racism where, you know, when they're, when they're leading to really problematic social consequences, are there, um, I don't know, ways to nudge people or, you know, I don't know, if you have all kinds of great work that's being done by behavioral economists and so on. I'm just wondering, how do we harness the other side of this and get people to overcome this? Aaron, you want to take a crack at that? Okay, Brandon. Um, <clears throat> that's a very, very good question. How do you overcome these biases? You know, I think the first step is um, becoming aware that it's not just racial prejudice, that there are other values, uh, even other cherished um, traditional values that um, um, are involved in social, um, uh, political and socialization actually. So we have to first become aware that of course they're racist, they're always gonna be racist, but I don't think that that's necessarily a problem. The problem is that normal everyday people, uh, certainly some more sizable uh, percentage become complicit. They become complicit. They look the other way. Uh, they operate off of racialized information and stereotypes that all contribute to the same um, um, uh, level of intolerance. Um, you mentioned George Floyd. Um, I'm glad you brought up George Floyd because here's the problem. You know, when I talk to people about George Floyd and I talk about the murdering of unarmed black men by the police, the first question that is most deserving, I mean, uh, most disturbing to me is what did he do? I often hear that refrain, what did George Floyd do? As if any person can do anything to deserve being murdered in the street by the police. So that is kind of a sign of what I've been talking about, that people have this motivation to believe that the system is just, the system works. 
And how else can you explain the murder of someone like George Floyd other than to blame the victim as if he was somehow deserving of being uh, judged by the police and executed by the police? So, um, but Brandon, to answer your question, the first thing is to become aware that these other motivations exist. Can I ask a question? Um, I think that's right. I think that, that, that human beings, we're very complicated. But uh, Darren, something you said, you know, you're talking about racism, and then you're talking about normal everyday people. For me, normal everyday people are racist. I don't think there's a subcategory here. I think that you can, that is the, the complication of being a human being, that you can harbor and believe thoroughly racist things, okay? And you can be a normal everyday person. You can give at church, you can tithe, you can do any number of decent human compassionate things and be a racist. I also, so I can be clear on this, I don't think that it is about black or white and all the colors in between, but I do think it's about race. I know some black racists uh, and I know, you know, 20 years ago, there was a whole conversation about why black people can't be racist. Yes, we can, we, we can be very good at it. Uh, yes. And, uh, but I, but to try to put the racist into the category, and again, I'll talk about uh, sexism and the sexual assault of women and children, okay? Now, the statistics say that one in four uh, girls or women will be sexually assaulted, right? That's a huge number of people. And I think part of the conversation that has gone awry in the sexual assault and the feminist movement is that what we have done is we have labeled uh, men who sexually assault as monsters and labeling them as monsters removes the moral content of their conduct so that we don't have to talk to them or treat them like normal everyday people but they are our fathers, our brothers, our husbands, our sons. And the same thing is true for racist people, which is they are our mothers, our sisters, brothers, cousins, and you know, some of us wake up in the morning, damn, it's me. So the question I think is, and this was the question that I had for, Brandon, I'm not ready to let go of saying racist yet. I, I think we run a terrible risk of talking about that for the racist that will translate into there she goes with that old timey stuff. We done with that. Okay, um, Hershella, I'm gonna respectfully disagree a bit. Um, um, I do not believe that everybody's racist. I believe that everybody and part of the human design is that we're hardwired for racial prejudice. Um, um, we need a new language. We need new categories. 
um, we can't put everybody in the racist bucket. Um, we can't uh, create a racist dichotomy. Well, some people are racist, some people are not racist. Um, the only thing I'm saying is that we should, we should not get rid of those categories, but we need to understand how everyday common individuals who they themselves don't consider themselves racist end up doing racist things. So, I, so I'm not trying to minimize uh, uh, racial prejudice. I'm trying to expand the bucket within which we consider uh, people's attitudes to be aligned with racial prejudice. Not everybody believes in the inferiority or hate black folk. I just, I just don't believe that. I don't either. I don't either. That, that's well, not what I was saying. I don't either. But what I, what I heard you saying was that there's this category of racist, um, and those are the people that we we won't play with. And it's like, no, we got to play with those people. That was more my point. Um, my my point is that we've been studying racists for the past 80 years. We know how they behave. We know how they think. We know how they respond to criminal justice reform. That is nothing new. What, what we don't understand is how normal everyday people who are not racist, but end up doing the same racist things, end up um, challenging criminal justice reform. Um, so no, that's this true. is how that's true. Right. That, that's true. Brenda, do you want to join, jump in here? Uh... Yeah, the, I don't, I don't, I want to, I don't want to get rid of the category of racist either, but I guess I, I just want to figure out, you know, I don't want to equivocate too much. I want, I want it to mean one thing. And so that I, I find in the discussion on systemic racism, it, it shifts a lot. And it, it, sometimes we're talking about individual attitudes uh, about uh, superiority, inferiority. Sometimes it means this this the system is producing racializing effects, right? So so it's producing disadvantage, and that outcome is referred to as racism. Uh, so it's it's a kind of moving about that that I, I guess makes it hard to to know what we're talking, especially when people are arguing. Uh, it it helps to to have some precision on when when we say racist, we mean this, and and so can you have racist people or are there only ideas that are racist as you know, some, something like Kendi would say there, you know, you have racist ideas and people are not racist and so on. Uh, but you know, I, I just want to sort of bring some more precision and, and for the sake of at least my argument, I was saying, let's restrict it to this type one individual, you know, traditional old school definition. And then for the kind of thing that we're calling systemic racism, which is the institutional um, factors that are generating disadvantage, uh, as if they're not inherently reflecting a, an attitude of, of superiority versus inferiority, then, then let's call it something else. So that's, that's all I was trying to say. Um, well, Brandon, that's a good point because I have a book, I have a new book coming out in, this, in, the, in the fall called Racial Resentment. So um, I propose that we call it racial resentment. Um, but I think the general point is that we need 
we need new language. We need new language to help to understand that not every utterance of something negative about race is racist. Is racial, it may not be racist, but we need a new dialogue because Brandon, like you suggested, these issues are very complex and just trying to always analyze these things from a racial prejudice perspective is incomplete. It doesn't really tell the full story. I, I want to uh, open up to the questions that have come in. Uh, we have over 460 people uh, on our uh, webinar this evening and lots of questions. Um, so I'm going to start off with Professor Steve Garvey from Cornell, who um, says, I have not heard any concrete proposals tonight for reform. Uh, I've tried to scan the public discourse article for reform. All I saw was maybe better police training. Is there anything else more concrete that our panelists tonight would suggest for reform? And I'll give you first crack, Brandon, since he- I, I, I think this, this should be in Herschel's court. I, I, I'm a sociologist, so my, I'm you know. Well played. Right, we're the guys who make the laws, right? You made the laws, you made the mess, you clean it up. Nothing like an ally. Okay, um, yeah, well, I think this whole thing about police training, police training, police training is just not going to get us too far. Um, and again, to in terms of George uh, Floyd, as I understand it, the officer that killed him was the training officer that day. Um, so I'm, I'm not big on just uh, training. But what we've got to do, I think, is seriously look at what, what Brandon talks about as those structural and cultural factors outside of the system that impinge on it um, because that's where they get their juice from actually. You know, and I, I, I say to my students all the time, we get the police departments we want. We get the judges we want. We get the lawyers we want. And how do we know that? Police officers do not live in separate embankments. They come home to their wives, their husbands, their children, their fathers and mothers, and they are embraced with open arms. We love our police officers, we love our judges, we love our lawyers. So it is bigger than the criminal and juvenile justice system in, in, in my world. And so I think it has to start really in, in, in education. I'm talking about pre-K pre that we need to look at in kindergarten, in, in nursery school, what are the lessons we are teaching children? There are children who are being taught to be racist and or racialized as they are being taught to speak. So I think, and there's plenty of work, I mean, where do we start? Start wherever you are. There's plenty of work to go around in this one, I think, you know? I think the conversation has to be kept going uh, on, on all sides and to hear things that we never thought we would hear. But if we are going to impact our systems, then it has to start culturally 
And I think with the, the family norms and family values, again, the police come home to us and we embrace them. And that's the way. I'm going to move on to another question. I encourage anyone who's listening to uh, add their questions in the Q&A uh, function and we'll uh, try to get them, uh, get to them. Uh, Father David Jones from St. Benedict the African Parish here in Chicago asks, a conversation that hopes to eradicate systemic racism has to be about the Derek Chauvins, not the George Floyds. Is the problem that America is most comfortable with fixing the victims and not the perpetrators? And I see Hershella nodding vigorously to that uh, question. I, I think that's the point you just made. So uh, he, he asked the, further, uh, can you grow up in America and not be formed and influenced by a system of education, formal or informal, rooted in a system designed to empower some by dehumanizing the other? And I think that, again, is what Hershella has brought up. Darren, what's your thoughts about that? I mean, that the, the education is the... Uh, first, I'd like to say hello to uh, uh, Father Jones. I haven't seen him in a bit because of this pandemic. I hope everything is well. Um, look, um, I'm a professor. I'm on the front lines of the education battle. Um, I know that um, um, education, uh, to, an, to a certain extent, is very, very important. Um, but for the vast majority of American citizens, um, um, they are uneducated. They're uneducated about racial politics. They're uneducated about these complex issues and emotions, and they buy into um, different types of uh, motivated reasoning and confirmation bias, and they are being fed information, even non-factual information that they think is true. So um, <clears throat> um, you can't educate your way out of that. Um, you know, there has to be some other uh, mechanism, um, some other type of intervention. Um, um, otherwise, um, you know, we're placing too much of a burden on education. And um, when we start talking about education, I think it's, I think it's too late. I, I think the die is already cast. So there needs to be um, some form of intervention uh, very early on. Um, um, like I said, I think, I think all of the ideas that we've been talking about are hardwired. I think um, uh, people in particular contexts will support things that they wouldn't normally support. You know, even, even educated folk um, have been shown to uh, um, um, exhibit many of these uh, motivations as well. So um, uh, uh, Father Jones, I'm not confident in education. Um, um, I, I don't know what else to tell you. We have a question from Connie Rackerton. Um, where do our panelists see the Catholic Church in the midst of all this? 
I see smiles, but I don't hear any answers. <laughs> well, all right, here I go again. Um, that's, that's what I mean as part of the education. I think our faith education and what we believe in and what we are taught with as core values goes a long way, even before we start pre-K and kindergarten, we are taught that's not right, that's not nice, that's wrong, don't do this, don't do that. And I think the Catholic Church uh, has a, a, a critical role in this. Uh, it, it is uh, a, a body of influence that uh, is stunning. So I think as the church calls out the criminal and juvenile justice systems, uh, its members will 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 listen, and I think there's going to be some splits and some you know uh, schisms going on. But it, the church remains; all churches remain, not just the Catholic Church, but certainly the Catholic Church is a, a dominant uh, religion in the world. Uh, has influence and sway, and therefore a responsibility to talk about these things and to acknowledge them and to take right and just positions. And I, you know, I, I, again, I'm not, I'm certainly not a scientist and I don't know what people are hardwired to do, but it's, it's troubling to me. I, I think we can make ourselves better. And I think that's one of the functions of religion is to try to make us, help us make ourselves better. Uh, if I may answer that question, I think that's a very important question. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna equivocate here. I'm gonna disagree um, because uh, several reasons. One, I think the Catholic church has many intractable problems of its own that is seeking to resolve. First, uh, second, is I've been critical of the Catholic Church when it comes to racial prejudice, racial discrimination, when it comes to the training of priests uh, to deal with these issues. So I ask you, where does the Catholic Church amass the expertise in these issues in order to be effective? Um, the Catholic Church places a great, so within the Catholic church where the rubber meets the road, where the rubber meets the road is at the priest level. And I just don't see individual priests having the expertise or being trained appropriately enough to become engaged in these, engaged in these issues. I think if change is to occur, it happens at the parish level within the parish community, um, within the Catholic parish community. I think the Catholic church needs to understand that um, that is somewhat limited in the expertise, in its own expertise in dealing with these issues. And the church needs to reach out, especially at the parish level to gain the type of energy and expertise needed to um, um, challenge uh, racial prejudice, criminal justice reform. So the Catholic Church has a role to play, but I think that role is most evident at the parish level. 
That's a challenging question. I, my, 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 my sense is that a lot of parishes are, are politically uh, I, either homogenized or, or, or split. And I, and I find, you know, my, my sense of the Catholic Church in America is also largely, you know, like split, split along political lines. And I think that that informs this issue much more than uh, the gospel does. Um, by and large, and, mm -hmm. and that's I think a challenge with with social media and the bubbles that that people are caught up in. It's uh, I think we would have been much better off if we had uh, a world without social media, where where our parishes could be spaces where we could actually have genuine conversation. But I think people just get polarized uh, too easily, and it's very hard to have uh, difficult conversations. It's hard, and again, parishes are also territorial, so it's hard to actually go out and encounter people who are very different and. Uh, and we don't know enough about, I mean, in general, I think, you know, the, the, the history of, of uh, Black Catholicism is, is not very well known, you know, for most sort of white uh, or, or sort of other immigrant uh, Catholic parishes. So just, there's so much we have to learn uh, about our history, too. So, um, uh, and, and, and Darren, I think you're right. There are, there are other serious issues that we're dealing still with the clergy sex abuse crisis and, you know, bankruptcies and all sorts of other issues that parishes are dealing oh. with and priests are dealing with. Well, Brandon, those are big issues, but the most serious issue is this secularization trend in American society. People are not in church. <laughs> um, the, you know, the Catholic church are losing parishioners left and right. So, so the church has these big issues that it needs to resolve first. Um, people are not in the church. Churches are closing. I mean, Look at the number of church closings in Chicago. I mean, every year, uh, hundreds of churches are, or hundreds of Catholic churches are closing across the country. So there is a serious issue that needs to be resolved within the Catholic hierarchy. And then perhaps maybe after we resolve those issues, maybe we can start tackling some of these cultural issues. Well, uh, but Brandon, that's a good point. Uh, Judge Ramon Ocasio uh, asked two hard questions. Uh, do Black Americans commit more violent and gun crimes? And does poverty engender crime? So the question that Judge Ocasio is asking, do they commit more crimes than, than who? Well, he doesn't, didn't say, but I... Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> You know, I, I, the, again, it's it's you'd have to look at the statistics and there's a way that you could say yes. And there's a way that can say, what does that mean? OK, again, if you and I'll start with, you know, most of the offenses that uh, my kids start out with, most of my kids start out with thefts. Most of those thefts are in grocery stores. Uh, you know, nine-year-olds who have dinner on the table usually don't need to go steal. Um, and and then, it, you know, it, it, it escalates. And I, I'm glad to hear Brandon say this, this social media thing is going to be the destruction of us all. Uh, so I would, I, I would say, yes, that they commit more crimes. I don't think, though, the research has suggested they don't commit more drug crimes. Um, than um, 
than 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 white people. We seem to that that seems to be a level playing field, if you will. Um, so, and I'm sorry, what was the second part of it? You know, what is okay. poverty and gender crime? Yes, yes, it certainly does. Uh, so, uh, Friar Paul Schlomer uh, says, uh, and it's sort of countering uh, Darren and Hershella, uh, he says, could it be that everyone is racist? but that some of us racists recognize the impulse and actively work against it. Some recognize the impulse and don't have the guts, integrity to act against it for whatever reason. The ethical term is passive cooperation with evil and some people foster it. Dan? I, I would agree with that, but you still can't consider everybody as races, because some people have information, some people have motivations to counteract those beliefs. Um, so for, for instance, let me give you an example. Um, in public opinion research, we can show that many people are aware of racial stereotypes. Um, we can show this routinely in public opinion data, but that doesn't mean that everyone will operate off those stereotypes because one is just aware doesn't make one racist. So this goes back to my point. We need better language. We need better categories. We need a better way of distinguishing these individuals who have these complex beliefs. Um, just because I'm aware of racial stereotypes among various groups doesn't make me a racist. So people have other existing information to counteract, or as we say in the social psychology literature, to inhibit or deactivate these automatically activated racial constructs. Um, so, so I don't believe that everyone is racist, no. We are out of time, but I want to offer our panelists one last opportunity to uh, sum up uh, and uh, start with uh, Hershella. Um, I just want to thank people for the opportunity to speak. Uh, I I'm, I'm, have enjoyed meeting Brandon and Darren uh, and hearing what they have to say. Um, I still believe that we are, most of us are racist. I think we become racist because we are in a racist society and that we're racist before we know it. Although I do agree that there are things that can stop it and help us short circuit it. I don't think we have to act on that racist impulse. Um, so, you know, I, I think that that's sort of um, it for me. I have definitely enjoyed this. I hope that these conversations um, can continue uh, and that, you know, we can talk to each other with respect and with some fairly daring ideas. I think that that's one thing I'm hoping that this will do is help us model for each other how to engage with each other uh, when we disagree. Darren? Um, thank you. I really enjoyed this. Um, Hershella, you're the greatest. Um, I just kind of like to leave the group with uh, what I thought was the most provocative question of the night. And that is, what is the role of the Catholic Church? 
Um, what is the role of the Catholic Church in combating racism? What is the role of the Catholic Church in criminal justice reform? Um, we need, so this is my plea. We need to help the church. The church needs our help. The church, the Catholic Church can't do it alone. The Catholic Church has some significant problems that it needs to resolve. Um, and um, we need to be there to help resolve these issues in the church. And um, we need to help the Catholic Church figure out many of these complex issues. So, so the church needs us. And Brandon, last word. Yeah, I'd like to echo that too. I mean, I think that's that's really. Uh, I'm curious to 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 learn more about the work of the Catholic uh, Criminal Justice Reform Network and and to help in any way. But I think that's really crucial. That, you know, that, what what is the 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 the, uh, the contribution of the gospel to this conversation, right? And 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 I think we can we can talk about data and measurement, which is the, sort of the thing I do, and and try to conceptualize racism in different ways. But ultimately, we need to to try to figure out how to overcome the, the, the impasse we're in in our society where I think largely now we're, we're just fighting or polarized and, and fighting. And so I, so I think that the church and the gospel really are, are crucial in terms of moving forward. And we need to, to, to figure out concretely what that, what that contribution looks like. And that is what our Catholic Criminal Justice Reform Network endeavors to do is to continue that conversation and bring forward the best ideas to help resolve as what we talked about as the intractable um, problems, uh, especially concerning the dehumanizing effect of racism in our current criminal justice system, which I have to share Hershella's just empirical observations uh, of, of a very racialized system to use uh, Brandon's word. Uh, and that is, something for any of us who have been working in this system, uh, as she and I have been for 30 years, very problematic is something that is deeply troubling to Catholics because it is uh, in revulsion uh, when you compare it to the ideals of the book of Revelation or of Paul's epistles, uh, which espouse this anti-racist rhetoric, but we have fallen as a society so far short of it uh, in the racialized, racialized uh, policies uh, and realities of the current criminal justice system. So I want to thank uh, all of our panelists and invite all of our audience members to join me in thanking them. I want to especially thank tonight uh, William Jordan, who has been uh, my helper along the way since September to form the Catholic Criminal Justice Network and is largely responsible for this event. Um, I also want to uh, thank you uh, for joining the Lumen Christi, uh, you uh, audience participants uh, for tonight's event. We hope you enjoyed it. Here at Lumen Christi, we are seeking to present the Catholic intellectual tradition in all of its breadth and depth and make it a living dialogue partner for you. Uh, again, echoing Michael's thanks at the beginning, tonight's event would not have been possible without the support of our co-sponsors of the Catholic Criminal Justice Reform Network, including the Institute for Human Ecology, Georgetown University Law Center, Notre Dame Law School, Boston College Law School, University of St. Thomas School of Law, the Catholic Lawyers Guild of Chicago, 
Catholic Prison Ministries Coalition, Colby House Jail Ministry, Seattle University, Seattle University Crime and Justice Center, the Fred Korematsu Center for Law and Equality, Loyola University School of Law, the Hank Center for the Catholic Intellectual Heritage, Fordham University School of Law, the Institute for Religion, Law, and Lawyers' Work, and the Center on Law, Race, and Justice. Finally, I invite you to get the word out to your parish, to follow us on social media, and share our other materials with your friends. Uh, you can also go to lumenchristi.org. And again, I want to join, ask you to join me in thanking our panelists and wish you all a blessed evening. Thank you.